Welcome to Intersections, the RIT podcast. From objects that are barely visible under a microscope to snowflakes and the massive RIT Big Shot, Professor Michael Perez has made scientific photography a major focus, with his images appearing on CNN, The Weather Channel, and Mashable. Today, Perez talks with colleague Ted Kinsman of RIT's Photo Sciences program about how one masters such specialized photography. So I sort of stumbled into science photo by, as a biology major, and I had been, become interested in photography in high school. As a bio student, I was interested in taking pictures of my lab experiments, photographing through microscopes, but I had no, I wasn't taught. I was just stumbling my way through making all kinds of mistakes. And after graduating, tried to find a job, couldn't find my way into the field at all because I wasn't formally trained. So I came back to RIT to get a second bachelor's degree before launching out on my pathway to medical photographer in Charleston, West Virginia and then some things I did there, and then moved to Detroit, where I was a medical photographer before coming back to teach here, which was probably not exactly my career path in my mind, but it's been an awesome experience in Yeah, if career. only we could plan the career paths out ahead of time, it would shorten a lot of... So how'd you find your way into this? Well, I always wanted to be a photographer as a kid. My original goal was to go to RIT and, and probably take photographic sciences. Um, except I decided to, uh, I was very young when I started college, and uh, I, I studied optics at MCC. So I got a degree in optics, and I loved optics and loved physics and decided I would just study uh, physics. I ended up working for the Navy, and uh, uh, after a while I decided maybe I should go into teaching and got a degree in science teaching. I taught high school science for 20 years as a physics teacher, and uh, on the side, continued to run my own company in, in imaging. Well, I got into imaging because I was looking at photography, and I really love photography, and I love science, and it wouldn't be great if I could have cameras take pictures while I was asleep. So I, I thought about time-lapse plants because I, you know, I have a big garden, and I love growing plants, and I set up a, a time-lapse camera in the basement and had some flowers grow and bloom and sent it off to some agents in L.A. and they loved it and they said, more, we need more of these. Ended up uh, very successful with that in uh, the Hollywood environment, selling, selling footage and uh, decided that I needed to move into some other areas, so I decided to go to, to still photography and ended up hooking up with a, a company in uh, New York City that was very happy to sell science photography, which I was very interested in shooting and using image to educate people. So I had a, another company running quite well in the background as I was teaching, and that sort of uh, got me into the spotlight of, of RIT somehow. And I think it was in the, the summer of 2013 you, you invited me to come teach here full time. I took some high-speed classes when I was here. Uh, at RIT, and then I moved to West Virginia, where I was really the only medical photographer in the whole state. You know, there's a lot going on in healthcare, and so this one guy, they were doing a lot of cancer research, just like they are now, and they were learning that a lot of the cancer medicines were, they would start, like the forest fire starts a backfire to put out the fire because it consumes all of the forest. Well, they were treating cancer in the same way, where they would start cancer and then burn it out so that it would run out of energy. They discovered that at the time, the nurses that were giving injections, when they pulled the, the needle out of the bottle, there was a back aspirate. And all of the nurses were coming down with skin cancer on their hands that they were holding the bottle and but they wanted photographic proof of 
that the aspirate was coming out of the bottle. So it, it took me a whole two, three days of just being there all weekend, shoot the film, develop the film, shoot the film, develop the film, to see did we get it. And I think 72 frames, which would have been two full rolls of film later, I think I got one of the 72 frames where the aspirate came out of the vial. But it was... Those kind of fun challenges were interesting to try to produce on film because there was a lot of uncertainty to it. You you didn't really know what you got. You had to create a system. You had to test the system. You had to test that the system would work and create a result. Then you had to develop it. Then you had to go back and then do the assignment to hope that it would work in the same exact way. Yeah, there's a lot of those. I, I did um, seven-hour exposures of glowing mushrooms to get the, the glowing bioluminescence in mushrooms, which is a really long exposure. And those kinds of images are, are fun to do. And it, yeah, there's certain kinds of images you can only do with film, even though it, film is really just a pain to work with. Radiation was, was discovered by Henry Baccarel, a Frenchman who had radioactive rocks on his film by accident. So I was doing some work for a physics textbook, and they said, we want you to reproduce this. And after I looked at the equations and stuff, and I figured, well, if I leave these old clock faces and some of these slightly radioactive minerals on a, a sheet of film for about a month, I'll get a good shot. It's kind of hard to calculate that because there's no tables for it. But a month, a month worked pretty well. You just put it in the closet and forget about it. When I came here, people were interested in me making photographs of live materials. Ward's Natural Science Establishment is a company in Rochester, and they were always looking for catalog photographs of different things, that new products that they would develop. And so they wanted to photograph some Nasonia vitropins. They're small, little, tiny parasitic wasps. And that was my first serious digital photographic you know, work. But I look at those pictures, and maybe it was 94, 95, and oh, maybe there were 1,200 pixels. And then now, nearly you know, 20 years later, you look at them and go, oh, they're, just, they're so almost good, but they're not good just because the sensor technology was still evolving as it is today. But you know, the, 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 the color was not faithful. Uh, the resolution was what the resolution was. How do you feel about going back and doing an old topic like that again? Like years later, you go, oh, I should go back and redo those wasps again. You know, sometimes when you do it the first time, that's the best time. You're just, you're more innovative, I find. Sometimes the enthusiasm and the anxiety that you're not going to get the shot drives your solutions in some ways. Once you know what to expect, then the unexpected doesn't happen. And it's a different experience totally. But of course, anytime you do something, you get better at it, faster at it, more efficient, because you have, there is no experience like experience. Yeah, I have these, sometimes I have to work with an art director and they, they really want odd things like uh, when I was freezing grapes for a, a project on ice wines, the art director is like, no, 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 those, those crystals are too small. We need much bigger ice crystals. And you're, you're trying to say like, well, that's not, they, I don't get to control they, they that. They, the physics doesn't work that way. Mm -mm. You know, but you need, I need bigger, bigger ice crystals for the, like, no, that, that doesn't, that doesn't work. That's that an way. interesting sort of a, a concept or, or observation. They have an image. The art world oh, has yeah, an image they, of what you can produce. And I was trying to explain 
I'm not in charge of this process. I get these compounds, I take them apart, I mix them up with alcohol or water or nail polish remover and see what grows out of it, but I'm not really going to be able to influence. I can try to coax it along a little bit, but at some point it's going to be what it's going to be and I have to interpret the outcome. And I can't really interpret it if you want it to be sciencey. If you want art, then, you know, we, we'd have to do it in a different way. If you're looking for science, I have to be literal and narrative and can't impose my own biases. In science, you know, we approach things very analytically and we're trying to be deductive in a way we approach yeah. it and create a neutral sort of everything, the, the lenses and the lighting and the aperture choices. There's all these things that influence the process that are not subjective, that are objective, picking the lenses and picking the aperture and things of that nature, and then trying to make a, a photograph that's an absolute facsimile of the object to the extent that the process will allow. I think to be successful in this field, you have to be curious. You can't just accept that what you saw or what you heard is enough. You need to have like, well, how do you get to the next place with this? What's what's really underneath the driving the reaction or what's driving the mechanisms or how do I use the lens to perform in a way that it doesn't want to really uh, been designed to perform? And, and you this, this help. That's the whole area of creativity. And I don't, I don't know how to teach creativity to my students, but I can I can show them. Right. So, but, so we keep our fingers crossed. Always. So, so by chance, you know, I, I learned about snowflake photography after having been here for almost 20-something years. And one of the students went to the Buffalo Museum and Science Center, and she wanted to photograph snowflakes. And I didn't really know how oh, to do this that. Is, this is an interesting story because I was featured in that show in Buffalo. And was I it had at a the couple, museum, the Buffalo Museum Yeah, the and Buffalo Science Museum Center? had these big, big displayed... Um, pictures on display there, which I'd shot on film and scanned. And that's what Emily came back to Rochester for. And so at that point in my career here, I was primarily just biomed photo, preserved specimens that were cut and stained and put on glass. And so it's like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm not sure. But then I thought, well, you know, there's something interesting about that. They're tiny. They're transient. They're difficult to see. And uh, that's how uh, you and I met, really, my driveway, because I tried to do it here in our breezeway, and I learned how airborne they are. And oh, in yeah. a breezeway, uh, <laughs> there's extra wind. And so try to catch them. They blow away and put them on the microscope. They blew away. And immediately I realized there's a lot to this process that doesn't meet the eye. In, in 15 years now or more, I, I look at you, I look at pictures of you, and I go, you know, you made me into this. Yeah, it's a massive, like, yeah. I have become obsessed it's, you know, it's, with it's, it. I, I love I keep, it. It's such I, a challenge. I, I think about challenges in photography, and, and that's one of the things that, that brought me to, to time-lapse photography. But along with that analysis, I, I also realized that there were certain things that were really interesting in, in, in photography that hadn't been done. And if they hadn't been done in 50 years or 100 years, it's time for someone to redo them. And snowflakes came to mind. So I started shooting snowflakes. And, and people react to snowflakes. It's, it's, as far as I know, it's the only thing you can photograph underneath a microscope that the common person will care about. And because, recognize. And it has poetry. There's poetry to snowflakes. And that people, it, it just stirs up something inside uh, an individual uh, photographing snowflakes. And, and I don't know any other object that, or or organism that you could photograph underneath a microscope that, that has poetry to it. It's interesting you say that because Instagram, of course, is a social media platform that people share photographs. And 
hey, I like many use Instagram to share my work. Uh, and, you know, it's a nice feedback mechanism and the instantaneous nature of it is exciting. But I have followers from countries where it doesn't snow and they are so fascinated with snowflakes, right? It's like a cult. These people can't wait for me to post the snowflakes and the comments and then the reshares and, you know, Iran and Iraq and Saudi Arabia and Brazil. You know, I think we all need outlets as people. Like we have our careers and we have things that keep us engaged in other stuff and it broadens your horizon. So for me, I think, you know, I equate it like people like to fish, people like to hunt. Oh, yeah. I like to hunt for the next great snowflake great with no other Have reason. you photographed the perfect snowflake never, yet? Never, never. That's what keeps me coming back. Like the person that plays golf, they want to get a hole in one or they want to get a birdie and they keep going back even though they never get that. They just keep going back because there's something, there's a cycle there, there's a challenge, there's a personal interest. So I... I haven't made any money on snowflake photography, but I think it's broadcast my work and CNN and others yep. because, as you said, people are interested in them. So I, I, I think as a science photographer, that's one of the hardest things you have to do is get your work out in front of people. Most yep. of the time people work in laboratories or behind closed doors and no one knows what they're doing. So if someone were interested to try to get into this field that's somewhat special and somewhat uh, – not well known. I think perseverance is hugely important. I, I think, you know, for me, patience and persistence and continually to try to find a doorway in, and even though most of them were closed at the time, I still maintain my interest in science. And over time, you build contacts, you build relationships, you build uh, a network, and one of those persons is going to open a doorway for you. Uh, but if you get rejected on that first invitation and you don't get what you want, you can't stop because you'll never get in. It's not that kind of field. Thanks for listening to Intersections, the RIT podcast, a production of RIT Marketing and Communications. To learn more about our university, go to www.rit.edu. And to hear more podcasts, Find us on iTunes or visit us at www.soundcloud.com slash RITtigers or at www.rit.edu slash news slash podcasts.